This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Hey everybody, this is Robert Gowan, and you're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. And joining me this evening is Paul Martinez and Eric Martin, and we're joined by a very special guest with us tonight, which we'll get into in just a moment, Tom and Jen Satterley. But before we jump into that, I did want to shout out to some people and say thanks for going on to our Patreon.com site and uh, contributing uh, there. It's one of the ways in which you can tell us how much you enjoy our content and you can support us. And uh, I don't know if there's anything else, Eric, that you can kind of share on that, but the importance of how that can really help us at uh, Mentors for Military. Yeah, we're just looking to try to help uh, militaries and civilians alike be able to bridge that gap and realize that the vernacular isn't much different when you start breaking down, you know, how we all speak. The fact that we all have to eventually transition out of the military at some point in time in our life as service members is a vital key in being able to adjust to that type of lifestyle and be able to you know, work in harmony, for lack of better words. So it's, it's a great program that we have here, and we, we welcome all walks of life, both you know, military and civilian and on a global level. Yeah, absolutely. And the Patreon, uh, Patreon.com site is the way in which you can help support us to keep this thing going. Your small contributions, $2 or whatever, can go a long ways. So jumping right into this podcast here, this is a really great show that we have uh, for you this evening. Tom has a really uh, extensive career uh, that spans 25 years that we'll jump into a little bit detail by detail. But one of the things that we wanted to talk about as an overall theme is just the um, kind of his theme or his, I don't know, Tom, what you call this thing, your tagline, I guess, is a better way of putting it, which is the greatest failure is the failure to try. And I love that whole aspect of it. And there's a Vimeo that's out there of which uh, Tom describes, you know, several stories on leadership and everything else. And this is one of those things. But Tom, you know, going back before your days, I think it'd be really good to kind of share the beginnings, um, you know, of what what really caused you to go in the military and what were you doing pre-military? That's an easy story. Um, it took me about the span of an hour to join the military from pure civilian to I was joining the military. I, I just graduated high school and I was building houses. Um, some guy was grooming me to take over his company down way down the road. And my friend had gone to basic and AIT, and or he'd come back for his leave before going to Germany. And we were going to a John Cougar concert that night in Indianapolis. And that's John about an Cougar Mellencamp, wasn't it, <laughs> at that time frame? <laughs> Whatever he's called nowadays. <laughs> and it was, uh, we were in the car driving in Indianapolis, about an hour, hour and, a, hour and a half drive. And on the way up, I was hearing about basic and AIT, and he's going to Germany. And I'm like, I'm in. That's what I want. I want that. And I, I didn't know why. No one else knew what I was doing. I hadn't planned it at all, and I just thought, you know, I'm going to make some college money, pay my parents back for what I blew, and uh, and I'll get out in four years, and everything will be gravy. And then I think I blinked, and uh, I was at 19. They were asking me if I wanted to stay in for another six for a bonus, and I was like, well, yeah, if it's if it's in Iraq, I'll do it. You know, if it's tax-free, I'll do it. If not, i got to get out. It's It's been a long road. But that was it. It was literally that. You know, probably less time than that because we probably talked about other things before he started telling me about basic and IT. And it just sounded planned out. It sounded like uh, something I needed to get me on track in life because I was just kind of floating around doing whatever you know, happened. 
Every one of us has a story like that, though. You know, I, I came on and wanted to get out of a podunk town that probably had a one red light at that time frame, and they offered me a $3,000 bonus to go combat arms, and I was like, sign me up. I just bought a car for $3,000 at that time frame. I think it was two years old. So it just kind of puts things in perspective. That was uh, a time frame where $3,000 was a hell of a lot of money. I think I got 3500 and I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's all I need in life is $3,500, and I'm good to go. Yeah, uh, uh, we're showing our age there, uh, Tom. So, um, after you joined the service and everything, you said you went uh, infantry. Is that what the uh, the MOS was? And you went off the basic, basic training, I guess it was, or uh, OSIT at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, what was the first assignment coming out of there? Or did you go directly to Airborne School? I actually went combat engineer. Oh, combat Fort engineer. Okay. Yeah, I, it was my first trip to Missouri, <laughs> and oh. uh, I didn't know I'd ever be back. I didn't want to come back for Fort Lost in the Woods, but. Um, yeah, it was OSIT at, at Fort Leonard Wood, and um, I picked all the great places to go, you know, and of course I didn't get any of them. I got I got Germany, which was a really good place to go, so I was pretty happy about getting Germany. My friend had gotten Germany, and so I uh, ended up getting stationed in Vilfleck in Germany, which I believe is closed down now. Yeah, I think you're right, and uh, let's see, Vilfleckin is also known as Wild Chicken? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you weren't too far away from me. I was out in uh, Fulda, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 11th ACR. Uh, that's of course back when there was a border. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I was there, it was a border. It was it was a lot well cooler. It was nicer to to want to visit. You know, like go to Berlin or something, or, or troll along the border and look for East German guards or something. It was just kind of it's kind of something you did back then because we were in the Fulda Gap, so that's right. where the Russian horde was coming. So. Yeah, yeah, I think they gave us a life expectancy at that time frame of 10 seconds. So we had enough time to, uh, you know, reach between our legs, kiss our butt goodbye, and tell them they're here. That's about it. But, um, you know, that was uh, that was a totally different mission back then during the Cold War era, for sure. Um, and then it kind of progressed from there. But then I think it was um, Jen that was telling me that that wasn't enough because you had also heard about the Germans who had who had acquired a uh, German ranger school. And so I guess it was during this time frame that you decided to go through their ranger program or ranger school there. Yeah, they had a, we had a Hungarian platoon sergeant, a former Hungarian platoon sergeant as my platoon sergeant. Oh and my God. Uh, the rest were like Vietnam vets and they were kind of like, whatever, I'm burnt out. And, and ours was a go-getter. He was motivated. So he took us to French commando school as the first platoon to go to French commando school. And then he took us to, um, to uh, Switzerland to do the Swiss March. And that was like 40 miles a day for like six days. We did like three days straight and um, stayed in Bern, Switzerland in those underground bunkers they have under every neighborhood there. And it was just kind of, you walk down in this, this, uh, this ramp underground and they get big bulb doors opened up and then there's showers and then food stores. And then in the back are just these shelves for sleeping on just hundreds of people at one time just lay on the shelf. And that's where everybody was crowded and crammed into. And it, it was more interesting than motor pool Mondays. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then whining about your heater and your APC not working in the winter, but it always worked in the summer. So they had a, a slot for German Ranger School come up, and one of the officers in the battalion said, well, I'm going. And I was like, I raised my hand. I'm like, well, why are you going? You know, why don't you hold a competition? You know, somebody else out here might be better than you. Right. And, and you want to put your best guy forward. So. They had a Green Beret that had showed up at the battalion, set up a three-day event, and like 500 guys came out. Oh, my and God, I, really? I, I ended up winning it. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, I don't know. Okay, careful what you ask for. So <laughs> I ended up winning it and um, ended up going, and they sent an interpreter with me 
and he he didn't make it past day three. Really? So, like, well, I'm, I'm telling jokes. That's how you get by when you're down and depressed and hungry. And I'm cracking jokes, and then I, I look back, and everybody's just staring at me. You know, it's like, well, that one went over like a lead balloon. So I was like, I'm pull security, shine my boots, and start crying. Maybe you know, I don't know. It's just something to get me past this moment. But it was it was kind of lonely, but um, I still liked it. So it was it was like I said, better than motor pool Mondays and everything else I did Tuesday through Friday. So how long was the course? That was uh, I think it was almost two months long. Wow. Okay. Was it uh, as extensive as the you know U.S. Army's Ranger School, or was it more on yeah. an easier? No. Okay. Yeah. yeah I didn't put a U.S. Army Ranger, but from from what I've seen and, and heard and, and the guys I've met, no, it was. Um, similar but uh you know america right so <laughs> i mean they were good but I, I think a lot was lost in translate for me yeah the guy standing around in a group and blah blah blah, blah, blah and everybody take off running and i'm just standing there like what he's like pointing his watch 30 minutes hide no find i'm like oh, i think i get it. it a lot was lost in translation but it was a lot of walking a lot of humping a lot of raids to get your food for the evening if you screwed up a raid you didn't eat you know which was often so yeah, a lot of people don't realize that that's basically what we do is we play grown up hide and go seek. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so at, about this time frame, I guess you were finishing up your enlistment. So they offered you a uh, reenlistment from Germany. Is that what they did? They did. I, I I got promoted to E5 pretty fast. I did not have PLDC. Oh, so okay. I could enlist for the bear program to go SF, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go SF. And they sent me a letter saying, well, you need PLDC or you can't join the bear program and get a bonus. I'm like, well, I guess I'll reenlist for jump school. I'll get Fort Bragg and I'll, I'll figure it out. And so I, I went ahead and reenlisted for jump school. Um, was hoping to get Fort Bragg. I assumed I'd get Fort Bragg. And about a day or two later, I got a, a letter accepting me to the bear program. <laughs> Contingent on PLDC, which was too late. I'd already reenlisted. So I went to jump school. Went to uh, the 27th Engineer Battalion on Bragg, and then went to um, then went and, and joined up for SFAS, and then finally got PLDC on Fort Bragg somewhere down the road, which pushed off getting E6 later. It was like, <laughs> well, you just went breezing by that, by that. So let me see if I got this straight. So you you were in Airborne School, came out of that, went to the Engineer Battalion, and and I'm assuming you applied for SFAS. But how long was that time frame before you applied? It was uh, immediate. As soon as I got to Fort Bragg, I went right down to the recruitment office. I was like, yeah, I want this. I want this right now. And um, I got that August SFAS class, which nobody really wants anymore. I don't even know if they do them in August anymore. I think people die. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I made that and then went straight straight to the Q course. Um, and then, <laughs> and I did a 18 Charlie there. I, I stayed engineer. It was kind of easy for me being a 12 Bravo to 18 Charlie. All the calculations were easy for me and so i'm in language school now if we're, if we're ready to move forward to that so i'm, I'm going to school after school after school after yeah. school I, I don't really like those guys you know um but yeah. i became one of those guys for a couple year period just trying to get where i wanted to be sure and um in language school i got approached by two guys who had gone to the q course with me and they said hey we're from the unit you know we think you have what it takes you should come try out I'm like, well, oh, okay, I guess, sure. And um, that was that was the thought I put into that. 
And so that day, immediately, I started doing flutter kicks every break in between language school, push-ups, and rucking every night. I'm like, I got to get ready for this. And that took me to, I think I moved to Fort Campbell, December of 90. And they were all deployed. They're all in Desert Storm, you know, one. And so I got sent to 2nd Battalion and 5th Group, and there was two of us there. So I was the CSM of 5th Group, or 2nd Battalion of 5th Group. And a medic who was injured was a, the commander. And um, <laughs> you, <only> did, <laughs> oh, I love it. All I did was spend their op fund and buy a bunch of stuff, you know, before they lost all their money for the quarter and, uh, and, and train. And I, I literally probably worked out five times a day doing different things. And um, I went to selection, made that, came back, and fifth group comes back in. I'm like, hey, who are you? I'm like, don't worry about it, man. I'm, I'm leaving again. So. <laughs> <laughs> selection meaning to delta at that point yep and that was that was that took me to otc and delta so well, how how was it that you heard about delta or that uh did somebody come and offer you that opportunity or how was it that you got into delta before the guys came back from desert storm you know if i go way back to germany in 1987 or 8 they had a recruiter come to germany and and, and went to the it's probably 87 before I was E5, and they had a recruiter at the at the movie theater there, and it was like E5 or above, that's it. And I snuck in, and uh, there's a guy standing down there in a suit with one of those old projectors that pop up, spin and turn, and go down, you know, those little pictures? <laughs> yes. And he's sitting down there, and it's some bad suit. It's a, it's an ugly suit, and he's got longer hair, and he, and he clicks on it, and it pops up a picture of the world. And he goes, this is our training area. Any questions? <laughs> like. I got chills immediately, and I'm like, wow, I don't even know what that means, but that's cool. And I, I sat and listened to people ask questions about pay and hair and weapons and gear, and he's like, I don't give a shit about any of that. I don't even want to be here, and I don't need any of you guys, especially all these stupid questions. And I'm like, I definitely want to work there. And forgot about it, really, and didn't, didn't really think about it. Um, a buddy of mine who was stationed with me in Germany and had gone to basic at the same time, but in a different company. His dad was SF in Vietnam, and he had a picture of him as a baby with his wearing his dad's green beret. He's like, I'm going to be SF. I'm going to be SF. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be SF too, man. That sounds cool. <laughs> Not even knowing what that meant, yeah. Yeah, if you get more money and better cool stuff, I'll do that. And so when I went to the Q course, two guys from the unit were going through the Q course to change their MOS, you know, because if you're in the unit, you get promoted based off of your MOS. So if you've got a crane mechanic or whatever that's in there, he may not get promoted as fast regardless of where he is. So a lot of guys will go to the Q course to get a different MOS that gets, you know, better chances for promotion. So they had gone to the Q course from uh, maybe one was infantry and one was a tanker, I think. And they went to become, well, both, they both went to the 18 Charlie course. And so they had watched me through the course and, and you get leadership positions and, you know, and all right. that other that they put you through. And then they approached me in language school. Um, probably the first weekend at language school, I had four months of Persian Farsi. Another four month wasting my time, but um, I gave it a good shot. But um, and they said, "Hey, we think you have what it takes. You should try out for selection. Are you interested?" I'm like, "Yeah." So they put me in touch with the recruiters, who came out immediately and gave me a PT test and psych evals and everything. So by the time I got to fifth group, I had a selection date. Wow! Uh, Ninety spring of '91. So you walked in the door taking on his rear detachment commander and everything, or CSM as it was and such, and knowing already right then that you're going to be headed off to the schoolhouse again for selection. 
So what what happened when the commander came back or uh, the team came back from Desert Storm then when you told him, hey, listen, I'm I'm out of here. You know, Sergeant Major, I think it was Simon. Big, big, bold man. You know, he, he was like, when I was there, he had me, he found out I was going to selection. So he put me in group engineers and had me painting no parking signs and stuff. I mean, back in the day, you either got hammered for going or you got, you know, hugged on for going. And he's like, I remember him rubbing his head. It's like, Sadly, sadly if your hair is longer than mine, you need a haircut. And by the way, when you go and don't make it, you're coming back and I'm going to leave you in group engineers forever. And I go, oh, Okay. Thanks for the motivational speech there, Sergeant Major. Yeah, no, but, uh, I think I'm one of the few bald SF guys that don't hate on other SF guys that <laughs> have the long hair. I'm like, hey, I want you to have hair because I lost mine after OEF one. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was older and unhappy, and you know, and when he found out you were uh, you were leaving, it was nope, you're going, you're going somewhere horrible, especially if you don't make it. So, I saw him later after selection and I'm still painting those yellow curbs and I'm smiling. He's like, I told you you wouldn't make it. I told you being group engineers. I'm like, well, <laughs> hate to hate to bust your bubble star major, but I'll be out of here in about two weeks. So he's like, well, paint before then. I go, I think I'll take some leave first. You know, just, uh, I'm just happy I made it because it would have been a nightmare if I didn't. Of course that was back in the days when Ranger had high end tights. And uh, I guess the guys from SF pretty much had the same thing, you know, not too many long-haired uh, SF back in that time frame. No, it's it's the magic everybody wants. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but once they see all these guys, you know, over there and, uh, you know, with the beards, the long hair, the whole bit, they're like, yeah, that's the job that I want right there. Yeah. N- never mind the filth and dirt that's always in it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you head off to uh, Selection. How does that kind of work when you go through selection? I mean, are they already trying to figure out where it is that you're going to fit within a team on the selection side of it or on the Delta side of this? Or, or, you know, I don't know what you can share, but how much of that, what really goes on in trying to place you within that organization, I guess? I think selection is simply to see if you're going to be able to make it to the unit. Um, If you're the guy that will never quit, um, if you're the guy that will never complain or rarely complain, Um, If you're a guy that can operate without instructions or human contact. Um, The differences in SFAS and Selection for Delta were two different pains, you know. The team competitions in SFAS were a nightmare, and you had to rely on other people. And if they fell out, you had to carry their weight up until you lost a certain amount of extra people. It's always a nightmare, and you you still can't give encouragement or, or, or yell at people, which happens when you're when you're struggling and people are just walking they can't even carry a map and you're humping a jeep you know it's like really dude really why don't you just split your food up tonight and leave it for us and just walk on out the door you know i got in trouble a couple times for that (laughs) yeah you lose it and you're like really i'm humping four sandbags and two water cans and you can't even carry so it's it's you're not going to make it's time to self-assess and move on but Unit selection was is a completely different animal. It's all you. It's you. You can only blame yourself. You know. Um, rarely do they cut people. I mean, they cut them in the end for safety and time. But nobody gets cut up until probably the last four to five days, and that's literally for safety, so people don't get strung out in the wilderness too far because there's only so many of us. And it might have even changed um, recently with GPS and trackers. You know, back in the day. 
you turn on your PRC 112 and you're late and the helicopter finds you and then they throw down directions, you still got to walk out, you know. But now everybody's got a tracker on them. But it's it's kind of like you show up and they're really cool to you. They feed you well. You get all the nice gear. It's all brand new. So nobody has a, a complaint. Nobody can say his boots are better than mine or his rucksack's better than mine. They, may, they, they level the playing field. They teach you everything you need to know. You could go to selection, fit, and not know anything, land nav or anything, and they will teach you everything you're going to use in that course, give you the chance to practice it over and over again, and then set you out on your own finally for practice on your own and then on your own for stress. And the only difference between instructional phase and stress phase is they give you a rubber duck, an orange, you know, 16 with no sling, and they add about five pounds or 10 pounds every other day until the end. Um, other than that, it's the same. Well, okay. You don't stay in the barracks anymore. You go, you go stay on the mountain, but that's, that's, that's fun unless it's downpouring, but it's all on you. Um, all the stress is self-induced. It's, you know, they'll come in and they'll write on the chalkboard or now a dry erase board. It might even be digital. I don't even know, but nobody talks to you. You just, you just wake up one day and you walk out to the bathroom and oh, somebody wrote on the chalkboard. Oh, be out front. And it starts all military. 1600 formation, out back, north side of the corner, four rows, blah, 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 blah. To assembly, out back around 6, 6 p.m. You know, it breaks it on down to civilian speak. And some people can't do that. Um, I got yelled at by a couple of guys who were trying to make me stand in formation and go get my uniform on. I said, the board said, meet out back. It didn't say what to wear. <laughs> oh, I love it. And, I'm chilling, man, you know, you got to be this, you got to be that. I go, don't you notice that it said formation, BDUs, boots, blah, blah, blah. And now it doesn't say shit. Lighten up, man. You know, and it goes from <laughs> exactly on time. A guy comes out of the classroom, makes a left face, marches in front of you and right face, file from right, call him right, blah, to oh, crack the door. Hey, guys, come on in, you know, at the very end. It's, it's totally breaks it down to see who could be military and who can let it go. Yeah. Um, it's funny the adaptations that people lack at times, uh, especially in that type of an environment. Yeah. I, I, I love to be able to let go and relax and chill out. And some of those guys need it, you know, and those are the yeah. guys you don't want. It, it's those are the guys you don't want. Um, the guys that think they have to do the military thing to do right. It's like this is the farthest thing from it. You know, we just, just do right. No matter how you do it. Well, how many guys were coming from different walks of life? I mean, you just came out of SFAS. You just, you know, I mean, you were pretty fresh and everything and had your, you still had your legs for the most part. I mean, at least, or at least somewhat. Or, But you had these other guys, I guess, that were coming from probably Ranger Bat. They were probably coming from Conventional Army. Um, what was kind of the mix? It's it's mostly Ranger and SF. I yeah. mean, everybody thinks you have to be Ranger and SF. And guys ask me, I, I don't want to go to, I, I, I got to get Ranger school. I got to get SF before I go. I go, no, you don't. We've had guys from the Army band come through and almost make it, you know? Wow. Um, <laughs> almost. <laughs> he brought his guitar with him, and he did it in jump boots, <laughs> spit shine jump boots, flat bottom jump boots. Brought his guitar with him. He brought his guitar with him. He called him Guitar Man. See, <laughs> <laughs> he's singing he's boots, 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 and parachutes, shoots, shoots. <laughs> yeah. He literally wow. made it to probably S stress four or five. Before, uh, I don't know if he, I don't remember if he quit or got cut. Probably got cut because he was slipping a lot walking up mountains with those boots. But <laughs> he, he, his only goal 
passed advanced land nav, which if you make instructional phase, you get an advanced land navigation certificate. That's really all he wanted to get him promoted over the rest of his army band guys. And Are he you did. kidding me? Plus, I say you couldn't go to like, I don't know, a different school, like a, <laughs> a, maybe a little easier one or I don't know. <laughs> but he made it pretty far. Um, had he had regular boots, he might have made it all the way. I don't know. But <laughs> we've, we've got crane operators. I mean, honestly, if we have a position at JSOC, which Marines, Navy, you know, everybody's gone or can go, um, you can go to selection. So any any military unit can can go. We've, we've got Marines. We've got some SEALs who crossed over and uh, love it, by the way. Um, Are they transitioned? Oh, yeah. They're they're like, okay, you're, we admit you guys are the best. You're, you're so. talking about the uh, the ones that don't want to go into movies or write a book or anything. Yeah, I was going to say, they have to turn down their movie roles and books, right? If you can't make enough in Hollywood, come on over. So. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to kill me now. I love those guys. They're great guys. So. <laughs> no offense, Paul. <laughs> no, I'm taking. <laughs> I don't have any books, so there's nothing cool enough about me. <laughs> Working. Uh, I'll take the so Paul Paul wrote a book that was a stab at uh, yeah, Paul. I'm I'm almost well. Our manuscript's due December first. So oh, awesome! Congratulations. Uh, thank you. That's awesome. I look forward to that. It's nerve wracking, man. It's nerve wracking. Who are you publishing with? Hatchet. Okay. Yeah, I got a friend who works over there. Yeah, they picked it up. Um, and they're like talking movies already. I'm like, how? Book's not even done. What do you? Oh. Like, oh, we're already on it, man. So I'm like, all right, have at it. I have no idea what we're doing. Just let me know what you need from me, you know? No, that's how it works. Good luck with that. That'd be cool. Who I do you mean, want uh who do you want playing you, Tom? That's what that's what the <laughs> ultimate question is. She's all over Josh Brolin right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> He's too old now. Yeah, Matt Damon, man. I used to get Matt Damon a lot and I'm like, mm, I, I can see Josh Brolin. Yeah, I, I, she's either in love with him or she, she's like, oh, no, no, you look like him. You act like him. And I, I started watching a video of him one time. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of funny. <laughs> there is a lot. True. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities there now that you mentioned it. Good stuff. So when you came out of Delta Selection, how does that work? Did you get assigned right to the, the team and uh, know what your assignment was with them and what you were going to be doing? Or Yeah, when you uh, at the end of Selection, if you make it, um, obviously you go for another board. And, um, and then all the star majors come down and they, they argue over you, but they first ask you where you want to go. So you have these three star majors sitting in front of you, all from different squadrons that are asking you where you want to go. And I'm like, well, what if I say one and the other one's taking me? And then I'm kind of, well, I'm going to get screamed at, which never really happens. Right. So I was kind of afraid to answer. And I said, well, you know what? I would say a squadron because only because I have friends in a squadron that the guy that approached me, the guy I kind of lived with for a little bit when I moved to Bragg, while looking for a home, um, we were we were good friends. So I, I said I would like to go there, but because I know him, I said but any of the squadrons will do. What I didn't mean was B squadron because <laughs> <laughs> love those guys, but every squadron has a personality. You hear about it. It's like oh, B squadrons the Rangers. They work late. They get up early. They work hard. And it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Where's, where's the chill ones? Well, A and C are chill. So I'm like okay, either one of those. So. I picked A and I ended up getting C, which ended up being great. You know, yeah. <laughs> they argue over you based on what they think they need and your background and, and right. what you got. You know, um, 
down the road, I got to see behind the scenes of picking people out of OTC, and it was like, yeah, 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 I, I get it. We all go for the best guy, and we fight over it, and then we figure out who gets what, and then you walk in the room and act like you're figuring it out, but you already had your answers, you know? Yeah. Well, I could, I could totally see where, you know, they're looking at you, and especially the fact that you're kind of driven, you know, and, and nothing ever gets in your way, and you kind of have that mindset that you'd probably maybe mesh with a certain type of people over another. And the funny is, is the fear that I had the entire time was I was never good enough and I was too young. Hmm. And literally in selection, guys were telling me, re, guys who had repeated and gone back through selection, were like, hey, don't worry if they don't take you, man. You, you're really young. So if I don't make this, I don't know, man, because I'm not doing this again. You know, this is not happening again. Find out later that you don't do it all again. If you make it, you do, you know, a, a, a long a row march and a another PT test and a psyche valve again. But once you complete it and make it, you don't ever have to do it again. Some people have completed it and not made the time. So yeah. they have to do it all over again, which would take some serious, serious contemplation. Um, yeah. When I look back as, as lightweight and energetic as I was and nothing could stop me, it beat me down. And, uh, remember having those talks with God or whoever was listening on top of that mountain on the way up that I was going to chainsaw this mountain Laurel and come back and every cuss word in the book and burn this place to the ground, man. And finally find <laughs> out of there and I'm like, okay, cool. Anybody hear that? You know, I'm, I'm going to keep walking now. Literally crying and screaming and throwing my rucksack and pulling my compass cord up and finding it's just a string. Like I got to go back and find my compass. Oh, jeez. I, I was cussing any any entity in the world at, at, at that moment i would probably would never have repeated that you know it was uh it, it gradually takes it out of you until it just snatches the rest of life out of you at the very end and just see if you can keep going and uh i was looking to quit on that last 12 miles on top of that mountain like if i see a truck i'm getting in the back of that sucker man i'm done and i didn't see a truck on the one intersection get the next one i didn't see a truck i'm like wow shit there's no more trucks <laughs> So I finally got to the next interview. There was a truck, and I just kept walking. I was like, don't look at it, man. Just don't even look at it. you got to be done soon. you got to be done. And then I got to that last point, and they're like, all right, your next RV is? I'm like, are you shitting me? Another one? And it was like 500 meter up a, ga up a gas pipeline. And I was like, hmm, well, I don't know. Maybe it's the end, maybe not. You find out later that's the actual end. You just got to walk out to the, where the road is. Uh, staring at my boots, walking up that gas pipeline, feeling sorry for myself, like I got another point. They're going to give me another point. That's, I'm going to quit there. And I hear uh, I hear Sergeant Satterley. And I'm like, well, I hadn't heard that in a while. You know, what's that? Because it's color, number, color, number, color, number. And then on the long walk, it's blood or guts with a number. And I was blood, too. And um, I heard that all day. Blood, too, blood, too. And then Sergeant Satterley, I'm like, what and I look up and there's two guys standing on top of a rock and it was uh Dick Davis and General Garrison who was a colonel at the time and I looked up and they're like selection for you is over and I go whoa whoa what do you mean no way no 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 you know what do you mean well no for you the stress phase is ended I go why why you know I'm starting to scream and fight these dudes they're like no 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 you're done I go what do you mean I'm done did I make it did I well, no <laughs> It's, it's completed for you. I tried to walk away, and Dick Davis grabbed my rucksack and yanked it off me and pulls it from me. He takes it, puts it on his bag, goes, come on, the fire's this way, and I start smelling the campfire, and I'm like, 
Oh, what? You mean it's over? You mean I've, I've completed it? Is what you should use your words. Choose your words wisely, Dick Davis. <laughs> I was gonna run away from a boat, man. I was not. <laughs> you should have clarified. Yeah, I literally started to feel like I was gonna cry again. I was like, no, huh? No, 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 no. I need different words. And they finally he wrestled the rucksack from me and said, "Come on, let's get to the fire." You know, Joker took my weapon, and I was just there walking with nothing. I'm like, "Well, it's kind of nice now." So. Oh, that's a great story. Oh, my God. I can't tell you how many times on this podcast we've actually talked about just go to the next telephone pole. Just keep walking to the next telephone pole kind of thing. And, you know, if you focus on the next one and the next one before you know it, you're at the end type. So many guys have told similar stories to that type of thing. And yours is a little bit different, but, oh, my God, they're at the very end. Yeah, I would have died if they would have said the same thing. Like you said, I mean, damn, say it totally different here. I still didn't know if I made it. It was just Oh, campfire, food, glue vine. I'm, I'm all in, man. And so, yeah, and they normally take you back on a helo. It's a long, long ride back um, from the from the uh, wilderness area that we're, we did the hike in. But the weather, it's always bad in West Virginia anyway at that time of year or those times of the year. So I ended up crawling underneath the seat of a 15-passenger van. I mean, I think they waited a, a little bit for a couple more people to finish. It's like, all right, once you're there long enough, it's time to get you back. I just crawled up underneath the seat for like an hour and a half, just fell asleep and woke up back at the barracks. I'm like, dude, I don't know if I made it. I don't know, but I'm done. So that's cool. I, I think I sat in the shower for a couple hours, sitting in one of those plastic chairs with the water rushing over me. Just like, <laughs> I, and I went to bed and you just don't know what's happening. It's like 8 a.m. breakfast. It was like n- another day, you know, and uh, the barracks is empty. There's, um, I think there was one guy sleeping and then I got back with a couple of other guys and then, I didn't see anybody for a couple more hours, and then I, I fell asleep, and I woke up, and there was probably 18 people now, you know, in the barracks. I was like, whoa, what happened to everybody, man, you know? That was it. I think it was like 18 people had made it out of 110 or whatever it was, 120. Oh, my God, yeah. They'll take pictures of uh, day one of selection of everybody before the PT test, and then they'll take a picture when you finish OTC. And there's been 120, 130, and then one guy, you know, that that, that would have finished OTC. They one guy made selection, so they rolled him over to the next class. But his picture's still there, as he was the only guy that would have made that OTC class. And then there's, I think, one of the big classes was the course after mine. There might have been 30 made it, maybe. Wow. I mean, how how much weight did you end up losing through this whole thing as well? No, I don't think I could afford to lose anymore. I was, I was 150 back then. I was, I was like a whip. Um, they fed you pretty well, so I don't think I, I don't know if I lost weight at all. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, you get really two really really great meals a day and an MRE at lunch until you go to the field, and then you get three MREs a day, which you never can eat. So you're always stacking up MREs, and you know people are giving out their food. So I was always pounding the chow, man. I was, <laughs> I had to. I was burning it off fast. Well, that's one of the big things that uh, I noticed, too, when I was in selection, like not in CAG selection, obviously, but in SFAS, is uh, I I learned how to graze real quick on my MRE as well, too, because, you know, you're walking you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 clicks between a point at times. It it pays off because otherwise guys were breaking down and like you know throwing up the white flag and saying, hey, I'm done. Yeah, those guys would end up. Uh, the ones that didn't eat properly would fall out quick. 
and they think it's all water. You know, it's not. You got to eat too, man. And I would pockets always had food in it. Always. I was going up a mountain in, in selection, sucking down beef stew, man, just out of the corner of it, just sucking it down and just walking up that mountain like oh, whatever man i gotta keep eating because it was i could feel me dropping off fast and uh got sick at the start of it um the day before the last day of stress before you do the 40 miler it's it's a sketch map day and it's pretty long but um they take you back after sketch map, give you about an hour to shower, grab about 15 map sheets and mark all the off-limits areas and fold them up, put them in your rucksack and get back in the truck. And um, they take you out to the wilderness area to camp out before the start of it. They start about midnight and um, everybody was getting rid of food. And I'm eating everybody's food, man. I mean, it's I'm just eating everything. I got sick, man. I had mm. stomach problems for about <laughs> the first two hours of my 40-miler. Uh, I would hop off the trail, go to the bathroom. I'd see flashlights go by. I'm like, crap. Hop back on, take off running, pass them, and then hop back off the trail. Literally for two hours, people were like, what are you doing? And you know, I'd pass them again. I'm like running because I'm scared. I'm behind now. They're like, I'm doing laps, man. Don't worry about it. You know, I was like, make it was, I'm on my third 40 mile lap. Don't worry about it. <laughs> trying to keep my humor, but I'm like, I'm get, I'm, I'm, I'm falling behind now. I'm going to get cut at some point. So I'm terrified. So every chance I could, I would run it. Until I'd go to the bathroom, and then I'd, I'd see people pass me in the dark. I'm like, shit, man, this is not working out for me. So I didn't eat for probably 25, 25 more miles, man. And finally, I was just stabilizing. I'm not doing it. And then I hit that mountain going across the creek. And it, you can either take the road or you can take, you know, you can go off trail. And they give you that choice that time. Roads and trails are authorized. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't use roads or trails ever. I'm like, what does that mean? Now, why would they say that? So as I'm walking that 200 meters before the mountain starts or the road, you know, happens, I'm like, why would he say that? Why would he say roads and trails are authorized? Is that a hint? You know, is that a clue? So I'm looking at it and I'm seeing the road go all the way around like they do mountains. And I'm like, look how long that is. And I look at the mountain top and I go, well, that's not that tall, you know? I'll just go straight up it. That road, I see... Uh, he was a ranger. Uh, Danny Nichols was standing up the street looking at his map. We made eye contact. He looked back down. And he looked back up, and he just started walking down the road. And I went, I'm doing it. <laughs> I started walking up the hill, and I got halfway up, and I was sucking down that beef stew. And I thought, this is kicking my ass. And I looked down, and I thought, hmm, rule number one. Always check your contour interval on the map. I was going to say, what was the elevation? <laughs> I looked down, and it had, it had quadrupled the contour interval. It quadrupled. So the mountains I was used to, looking at it on the map, going, nothing. This was quadrupled. The contour interval, it, you know, and I was like, shit, man. I should have taken the road, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grabbing trees and mountain laurel and trying to climb up this steep. It's like a cliff, man, with trees hanging off of it to get up. Pretty much. And when I finally made it to that RV on top, I must have looked like crap. And uh, the RV controller, he's like, oh, man, he was talking to me. And they're not supposed to talk to you. But I don't know if that was the point. They tell you to be nice for a minute or two. But he's like, hey, here, you need some water. You need some water, man. Come on, come on. How you doing? Man, did you, oh, did you come straight up that sucker? And I go, yep. Because oh, oh, bad call, bad call. But hey, you're here. Let's keep going. <laughs> I know it was a bad call, man. And I look at the next RV, and I'm like, it's not even on this map sheet. And I looked at the next one, I'm like, it's not even on this map sheet. So I had, like, an RV here, and then two map sheets later was my next RV, and I was like, 
Oh my God. And I just came up that and it's literally, uh, the trail on top of the mountain. I thought it would be dry. It was like a Creek. It was literally like we're on top of a mountain. It's all rock. How is there a river running down the middle of this trail? And I was just walking and I made a joke. I'm changing the water in my boots again, just changing the water in my boots again. And just, I just kept walking. <laughs> One of those nightmares that didn't end for a while. What about your ranger buddy that took the road? Yeah, he beat me. He finished first. <laughs> he had started first anyway. Um, so actually for me to see him, I knew I was caught up a little bit. He was blood one, I was blood two. And he was a repeat. So he knew what he was doing. I don't know if he was trying to decide if it was a better idea to go straight up this time or maybe he went straight up the time before. I should have asked him, actually. <laughs> when I finally got to finish, he was already gone um, in the van. So it must have been at least a good 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, wow. More. So it could have been a couple hours. I don't know. But um, he's the same guy at the, at the beginning. He had done it before. And I'm thinking 40 miles, four miles an hour. I'll be done in 10 maybe eight to 10 hours, right? I hadn't walked that far really in my life except in Switzerland. I didn't really time it. And he was like, oh, okay, good job. You go for that. <laughs> I'm like, what? That's not, that's not, that doesn't sound right. You know, four miles an hour, right? 10 hours, eight <laughs> to 10 hours, I'll be done. He's like, yeah, I'll see you at the finish line, man. And I don't know, 18 hours later, maybe. <laughs> 18 hours. You missed that one by a mile, didn't you? About the elevation changes in the whole that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an eye-opener for me. I like to get things done right away. You know, if I do a school, I like to get it done. I like to be done with things. Um, you know, driving down the road, I hate driving, but I like to get there now. So, yeah, I'm doing it in my head. Going, yeah, I'll be done by, I don't know, 6 p.m. tonight, man, right? <laughs> I, had, I had one of my buddies decide to take the toe cups out of his uh, jungle boots when he had gone and he was like dude that was the worst decision I was like oh yeah how come he goes those mountains are pretty steep and I was like I know I was like I told you not to do that before you left there was guys that do strange things to their boots um, before they need to I've seen guys cut the whole heels off their boots when they have blisters so big they want to keep going. They just cut the entire heel off their boot. A friend of mine did that. Um, he tried it from out from fifth group as well. He got lost on that mountain going up towards the end that I was talking about and just ended up, he was eating Motrin all day. I was trying to take care of his feet in the base camp. I mean, his blisters were, I mean, his feet were the blister. Um, cutting out chunks of his boot and bandaging him up and he's eating Motrin. And he got so sick eating Motrin, he ended up throwing up and dehydrating and fell asleep on that mountain. And I remember they had to, took a while to find him. <laughs> oh my god turn on his radio and they, and then they were trying to figure out where he was last and and uh where he could have gone and they ended up finding him um eight hours later maybe on that mountain of sleep wow that's crazy I, well now you guys have the, the beacons on them i know that they put beacons on our guys when they go through uh, sfas candidates no oh, thank goodness for beacons and sfs yeah. that's a harder land that man at least it, I, it is I around it versus I don't know, man. Trails and creeks and flat. You know, it was, it was hard. I was yeah, lost. You gotta love the wind and hour vines. Yeah, I mean, oh, and then Bones Fork Creek. Oh Who, yeah. Ooh, I that. got lucky in Bones Fork and found that one like log that goes like across. Oh, and I was like, oh, in Bones Fork on the map, I'm like, 
I, I didn't find it. <laughs> I, I, I was like, oh, shoot. I, I, I seriously thought I was lost, and I was like, holy crap. And then all of a sudden, there, it was like that, like, ah, moment where, like, the tree was just, like, in this, like, ray of sunlight, and I'm, like, charging across. I'm like, I'm going to get my point. That was a, that was a nightmare for me. That was, uh, I didn't make it. I didn't make that log. <laughs> what year did you uh, finish, Tom? Uh, SFAS? Yeah. That was in the summer of 90. Yeah, I think August 90. So then it was like, what, 91 when you finished in the uh, selection for Delta? Oh, wait a minute. August of 89. I went to the SFAS. Yeah, and then 90, I'm in the Q course. Yep, and then spring of 91, I went to selection for the unit. Yep. So it wasn't too much longer than that Somalia came up. Yep, 93. Yeah, I was... uh, Really, less than two years. Were you already in E6 at that time frame? Uh, yeah, I made E6 in OTC. They okay. finally, all those schools, nobody will send you to the board. Yeah. So in OTC, they're like, hey, hey, what's up, what's up, what's up? Yeah, okay, you're E6. You know, you'll get promoted sooner or later. So, uh, yeah, they pinned it on during OTC. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the whole uh, Somalia and Mogadishu, because, I mean, I, I know that you... Uh, played a role there and then of course uh, the movie Black Hawk Down a lot of people are very familiar with and it might be helpful to kind of understand a little bit about that being the first opportunity in which you've you of course saw combat and a little bit about that because what was it it was the the longest firefight um, since Vietnam yeah um, at the time too I, I think there's been a couple or one at least in Afghanistan and Iraq that has lasted and who knows when you hit the clock on a firefight, but, um, and then turn it back off, you know, it's like 18 hours. Okay. Ours is longer. Um, yeah. Early that summer, we started training up, um, with 160th and uh, Ranger battalion. And then it, it, it swapped over due to the change outs of the cycles. And, um, we picked it up down for Fort Bragg during this train up and we got 160th there as well. We're doing, we're doing guys, we're doing hits with the Rangers. We're working everything out. And then, um, when was it? It was uh, maybe August at some point. We got we got the word. Yeah, we're going. We're rolling over. I I don't know if, if something set it off. I was talking to my co-author today about that, about what would have set that off. It was either either the UN got attacked again or some the Marines got attacked over there. So it was like, okay, now we're definitely going. And we loaded up, and they're like, well, it's Task Force Ranger. You all got to get haircuts. So, I mean, when I first got the unit, I was like, I'm growing my hair, man. You know, that's it. Because I can't. And then as years roll on, I start cutting my hair anyway because it's just, it kills me. So this is actually about as long as it's been in a while. So, of course, we show up. Now we, we load up and fly out and we land in Somalia and we're getting off. And you can look around. It's obvious who the Rangers are and who the new the new guys are with the big white heads, you know. I mean, my was, sunburn was immediately following that when we landed because they were used to their high and tights and me, I... I had this hair down, covering my entire ears and down my neck. And I walked in, I'm like, oh, I need a high and tight. And I'm like, what? <laughs> cut all off. I'm like, yep, cut her off, man. And I mean, I think I had a flat top, too. I was like, yeah, do a flat top, man. Do something different. Nice. But you could tell who we were. We all the white stripes around our heads from the fresh. Got that good kid and play look going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I could only dance. But um, that's what I was going for, too. But, um, you know, at the time, we thought it was we did probably six hits in a couple of months, you know, we did two signature flights a day, 
just to so they wouldn't know when we were really doing a hit. And that's that's a little dangerous, but I mean, we probably did six hits. We did one rescue mission, um, so seven total in like two two and a half month period. And it was all like I thought war would be, you know. You fly around, you might see a bad guy every now and you shoot one. Maybe they shoot back. Nobody gets hit. The good guys go home. The bad guys die, you know. And um, it stayed that way until the Osmanato hit. Bullets started flying a little bit on that one. We did a VI. I think it was our first VI. Um, shot the engine out of the vehicle. We are following through town. Shot the engine out. Shot, I think shot the driver's legs probably as a byproduct of shooting the engine out. They jump out of the car and run inside a house. And it's like, okay, now it's just a good old hit now. So we infill. They started taking decent amount of fire. So my bird was still, you know, in the pattern. And, and the, so they called us in and put us in an intersection. As soon as we roped in and hit, we started taking fire. I took off running towards it. I don't know, near ambush, far ambush. That all went out, out the window, man. I started running. And me and a buddy were running down this alleyway, bullets zinging on the dirt, on the walls. I'm running behind him thinking, when's he going to fall? You know, because I'll be next. And what are we doing, by the way? So we found a little alcove and we're the gate, you know, for entry to a yard and we could get behind it. So we both ran in there and time sped up again. And I turned, I'm like, everybody's behind us, right? And the rest of the guys were behind a big pile of rubble, uh, boulders in the intersection, wondering why we took off running down the street. So we're kind of pinned down there, exchanging fire back and forth with this automatic weapon at the base of a tree at the end of the street. And, you know, suppress it. People run across the street. They're like, oh, no gun. Next thing you're taking fire again. So you suppress it. People run across the street again. Oh, no gun. Get behind a gun again. I'm like, all right, well, I don't know how long I'm going to let this go before I start shooting people that run across the street, you know, before they get the gun. And uh, they start sending civilians at us. Um, I mean, they pretty much start surrounding us, and we ended up getting out on time on that one, exfilling off the roof, but we caught Osmanado. Um, I ended up pulling guard on Osmanado before we went off on the roof, and he had the sunglasses on his face. And he had this real cocky look. I kind of pulled his sunglasses off his face and stuck in my pocket. I started searching him. I think I found some cigarettes and some money and, I, and a lighter. I put it in my pocket, and I gave it to uh, Sergeant Major when we got back. And that's, that's the stuff you'll see in the Special Ops Museum on Fort Bragg. That's yeah. the stuff off Osmond Auto that day. Um, and then that led to, I don't think his capture led to it, but another source led us to 3 October, where he puts the little panel on top of the car, lets us know that meeting's going on, you know, so the ISR calls down. They were playing volleyball. Uh, the command we had, uh, General Harold, was taped to a cot, propped up watching a volleyball game. It was officers <laughs> versus NCOs, and all they all... All the NCOs taped the officers to cots and propped them up on one side so they couldn't play volleyball and just won. <laughs> so, <laughs> guys went on a long run um, before that. And we got back, and I don't know if our pagers went off or if um, we got back, things were stirring, and they're like, hey, we got we got a hit, we got a pop. So, I was literally dehydrated, grabbed a bottle of water, put my kit on, and went and sat on the bird and waited. And the team leaders would come out and run. All, all of us are sitting on the birds waiting on the team leaders to come out of the job. They come out with a sketch, pencil-drawn sketch map of the buildings, you know, and they're all different because nobody drew the same one. And team leader's screaming and pointing with the blades turning, you know, to the piece of paper, blah, 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 blah. He thinks he's saying, we're going here and you're running here, and I hear this, blah, blah, blah. I'm just nodding my head, man, because I'm number one guy in the door. I'm like, got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, always, man. <laughs> 
as soon as we infilled, I knew it wasn't it wasn't like always. Um, we were taking fire. It, the brownout was so bad that our our Black Hawk had to pull out, and they, in, they inserted us outside the Ranger blocking positions. Oh, and uh, we were taking fire. I think I heard with Blackburn had fallen off the rope at the time over the radio, and they had a medevac or ground evac. And uh, our team at the ground, we were taking fire, so we just had to take down a house right there on the on the street just to get off the street. And um, there was a big, big man in that house. And I remember, I'll never forget it. He looked like the guy on the Green Mile, <laughs> if you've seen that, that big. Looked just like him, but maybe bigger. And uh, I came in and saw him, and I'm like, whoa, I went right. And uh, I'll let the number two deal with that one. And uh, number two came in and took the corner, and then he grabbed this guy, and he was like a big baby, man. He grabbed him to get him to the ground because uh, he doesn't speak any English. And I noticed he was holding something. I'm like, what's he got? What's he got? What's he got? You know, I got my gun on him. And I see it's this little bitty baby. And my buddy's trying to drag him to the ground, so I'm like capturing, catching this baby out of his arms, you know, holding him in my hands before this guy gets thrown to the ground because you couldn't see him. This guy was so big. And I got this baby that's not even screaming. It's so small. I found a woman in the house, gave it to her, and you know, I'm like, this is not the house, we gotta get out of here, and the house started taking fire, so we left. Had to fight our way down the street to the Target building. Um, on the way in, there's two brand new Pajeros driving out, full of four four well-dressed gentlemen each. I stopped the vehicles, you know, I was getting ready to do some business, the team was like, it's not what we're here for, let's go. All right, jogging down the street, like, could have been a deed, I don't know, man, let's keep going. <laughs> and uh, get to the Target building, um, detained 12 to 15 people in the target building searched the building um a five ton got hit by rpg outside at the time so starting to stress a little bit um a lot more injuries um and then still started cracking jokes about are we gonna make it back for dinner i wonder what diesel's cooking up tonight man i'm hungry you know because we didn't have any water didn't bring night vision definitely gonna be back in an hour right we start prepping for Exville, load up all the detainees onto a five-ton and start sending the convoy out. And we're waiting to load up. And then um, you hear an RPG again. There was multiples that day. But um, I heard RPG go overhead, and then I heard an explosion. I look up, and I caught the tail end of the helicopter spinning out of control overhead. <sighs> and I was like, this can't be good at all. This cannot be good. Um, there's no. I, you could tell there's no flying that one home. And... Uh, so they started changing the calls that we had to start moving um, east and north to try to find the crash site. And right right then, there was a ranger leaning up against one of those metal gates and uh, he had his back to it, just was taking a break. And his neck just like explodes. He just got shot through the gate. And I was like, shit, we got to get out of here. Um, loaded him up on the convoy and we started pushing east on both sides of the street before we turned north. And it was still a pretty large force. Um, and when we turn north, uh, as we're headed, you notice people at a block away on either side, just crowds of people shooting at you every time you cross the street, kind of paralleling us. And some strange things happened. People, a friend of mine called me over. He said, come look at this, Tom, look at this. And I walked over and there was like a donkey with a cart slowly walking across the street and all these people running and shooting. And I'm like, that donkey's pretty chill for what's going on. And then you see feet underneath the donkey, using the donkey, holding them in place. To, to master moving, I'm like, it's easy to shoot the donkey, man. You know, drop the donkey, and those three people are standing with guns. Like, I now drop those guys. Start shooting those guys. And that just happened every intersection until we turned north. And um, when we turned north, I was on the west side of the street with my team and a couple others. And the other teams were on the, on the east side of the street. And I think that they were taking more of the sunlight. 
they were they were lit more they got tore up on that side um, oh my god yeah i remember uh looking at earl and uh earl i saw him across the street shooting up uh down towards the crash site and uh i turned and was shooting down towards the crash site when i looked back i saw two guys dragging him into a building and uh you know he wasn't moving, so I knew that's when it that's when it became no longer a video game, I guess, <laughs> for today's people. Um, back then, it was like, wow, we're not invincible. Plastic helmets, a real shitty idea right now, and uh, light and fast. You know, don't bring the nods, don't bring extra stuff, don't bring water. We'll be in and out. Um, I started thinking about Kevlar and shit like that. Uh, worked our way down the street of like another block and a half, and ended up taken down two houses one directly next to the crashed helo which was on the east side of the street and then the house that i ended up being in with my team the most northern western position of the whole element so we had the crash site just across the street and we were taking everything from the north and from the west um with everybody else straggled down behind the street behind us from the direction we came and that kind of went on all night um they're picking our house apart with rpgs um just blowing holes in the walls. We drag people out. I mean, nobody got hurt inside the house, minus one of my friends who was leaning up against the wall when RPG hit it. I had just left, turned back around to grab his canteen to fill it up, and the room explodes. And there's this red rocket engine flying in circles around the room. I didn't really know what it was. I'm standing in the hallway looking at this hole in the room now, and I can see outside. I can see the crash site now. And uh, two IC was sitting on the couch in the hallway, and it was a loud explosion, but it's going on all day and all night. He's like, what was that? And I'm like, I don't know, really. <laughs> I was just in shock, sitting there looking at it, going, I don't know. And then it hit me. It was RPG, and um, the motor had caught the couch on fire in the room. And I went in. It was smoky and dusty, and I, I went to pick up what I thought was my buddy's leg, and it ended up being a concrete pillar that was laying on top of him. As soon as I pulled it up, he comes out gasping for air. You know, he had the wind knocked out of him. That was really all that happened to him. A little bit of concussion. Laid him down for a few hours before we got him back in the fight. But the two rangers that were on the outside of that hole in security on the corner got hit. So now um, I ended up going outside with a couple people to drag them in um, and work on them. One of them had his heel blown off. The other one had got entry wounds in the butt. And, uh, you know, one out between his legs. So he was kind of worried about having kids down the road for good reason. Um, packaged those guys up. And, and uh, those were the two main injuries that night. Our troop sergeant got shot. It wasn't bad. And um, he was kind of walking wounded. And then ended up, I ended up having to go back out, being the youngest guy on the team, minus the one who just got injured by the RPG. Now I'm the guy that gets to run outside. I had to go out and find their M60, which was digging around in the dark and the rubble looking for a, a big enough piece. I'll bring that in and see if that'll get me going, you know. They didn't want to leave the weapon out there. And then we finally got a resupply later that night when we were all out of ammo and water. They were kicking out water and, and five-gallon jugs and water bottles, which were exploding on the street, and cases of ammo, which were exploding on the street, which, oh, yeah, speedball, prepackaged items. Okay, let's write that one down for next time. Yep. I'm out there scrapping bullets out of the dirt, man, thinking there's got to be a better way because I'm going to get shot. Bring it all back in our hooch. Now it's like the guys across the street need some. Well, I guess that's me, right? Okay, let me run some stuff across the street for these guys. You know, I didn't get a scratch on me. No, not one scratch, man. Um, 
It's crazy how that kind of stuff happens. And I, I think that you point out a really, I hate to say awesome fact and factor of uh, battle, but I mean, it's not like people just hand you ammo and here you go, here's your resupply or, you know, there's a random package hanging out on in the uh, room like Fortnite and all that stuff. You know, it, it's the real deal. Yeah, I've definitely had some speedballs blow up on me. You know, it's a very common thing to this day. We obviously we package things a little differently, or you learn, you know, little lessons. Like you said, you know, having all the prepackaged stuff, and then your ammo blows up. It's everywhere. You know, we learned you can't drag your P mags very far in your speedy ball. So you carry your P mags and you put your steel ones in your in your skedco and you drag those. And at least you got something to to hold your ammo when you get to it. Because we've had, you know, problems like that before. But you know, I've had a similar experience. Obviously, nothing like that. Uh, but you know, everything will be going to shit around you, blowing up, you know, there's bullets whizzing by your head and you walk out of the thing when everything, the dust finally clears and you're getting on the bird and you're like, really? Nothing? How, yeah. how is that even possible? You know, everything around you be getting chopped up and you just, who knows why, you know? I didn't say any special prayers beforehand or anything like that, so I don't know who's smiling on you, but glad they were. Yeah, guys had bullet holes in their gloves, in their clothes. It was like Pulp Fiction, you know? They get shot at, they turn around, there's holes in the wall behind them, but they're like, divine intervention, <laughs> whatever. I'll take it, whatever it was, I'll take it. Um, a lot of guys walked out without too many injuries, not a lot, but um, several of us did. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how, you know, like you said, it's just like, wow, I'll take luck or whatever it is any day. Um, any day. 10 year old and AK kill you, you know? We had uh, Larry Moores. I don't know if you're familiar with Larry. He was the platoon leader of the Rangers that came in, came out of the wire to uh, to come help you guys and everything out of there. And um, we had him on the show once, and it was very interesting hearing his perspective of the story, of uh, what he was hearing, the the struggle he had in in trying to get the information and what he needed and stuff in order to get to the site, and uh, the chaos, of course, you know. It was a nightmare for those guys. Um, being told to turn right as you pass it, you know, by the time you get the message and then driving into another ambush. I, I think they went in and out about four or five times and reloaded with people like, hey, cook, here's a gun, man. Let's do this. Guys are like, uh, really? I came here to cook or type, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, they just kept, I mean, I, I when I got back the next morning, um, our element, when, it, when we ran the Mogadishu mile and finally made it to the intersection where all the tanks and Pakistani, Malaysian APCs and, and 10th Mountain Division uh, unarmored Humvees were, it was, um, tanks were firing, all these guns and people were just firing. I'm like, holy crap, no wonder it's so loud, you know, where we were. We piled into the back of a couple of unarmored Humvees and they took off. I'm like, somebody's got the plan, you know, we're still shooting out the back. Got more ammo, loading up, and finally the shooting just tapers off when you pass that uh, that road where the clans just turn friendly or whatever. It's weird. It's like an invisible wall. And uh, they took us all the way back to the back gate of the airfield. Everyone else went the shorter distance to the Pakistani stadium. And um, I didn't know. I mean, I was just in the back of a Humvee with a dead radio, man. Glad I was at the back gate of the airport. And we waited a... Uh, maybe 20, 30 minutes, nobody else came. So I was like, well, this is either bad or very, very, very bad. And um, 
we drove around the, the entire airfield, got back to the hangar, and as we rolled in, I probably saw about 10 or 12 bodies laying on the street, covered, you know, U.S. bodies. And um, I didn't look at their faces. I looked at their boots, and I could tell who was us and who was who were Rangers. And um, and then I got to the end, and I saw one was totally sandbagged in. The guy had an RPG sticking out of his chest where he got hit, and it, it was too close. It didn't detonate. So I had to sandbag it in and figure out what to do with that. And that's when it hit me, and as we turned and entered our uh, – our area, all the Humvees and vehicles that were full of blood and the smell of bleach in the morning and the heat, the sun was heating up everything, the sand and the bleach and the blood. I'll never forget that smell that, uh, yeah. of them trying to clean out the back of those vehicles. It was just thick with blood everywhere. And I was like, wow, so much more happened <laughs> than I even know about in my little corner of the world that night, you know? And that's when I realized that even guys in the next room or guys standing next to you, see something completely different under stress than, than your story may be. There's a lot of arguments for a while with, between guys like, that's bullshit, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. This is, I'm like, I think after a while you realize that two people process stress differently. And that, by the way, you're looking at one thing, he's dealing with something else. He may never see your story anyway. When I saw Black Hawk Down, which I've seen once, um, when they did that pre-screening for us at Fort Bragg, it, there was things that I'm like, I have no idea if that happened. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. I would only know my story, you know? You'd have to talk to everybody to get a complete story of what really happened there to understand it. I mean, I know what the convoy went through over and over again to get to us and just getting hammered. Um, and probably had, probably had it worse than we did, really, because they're out there exposed, driving around lost. At least I was stationary in a, in a house, you know? It's a funny thing about combat, like you were saying, everybody sees something different. I've seen Black Hawk Down, you know, dozens of times. That was where we're required to because we're Rangers, you know. Uh, but I've never heard, you know, like the details like you you explained. Like it was like a whole new story, and I learned that, you know, when I was writing about my experiences as well. You know, you you, you know, we'd have some beers and argue with your Rangers, like ah, oh, that never happened, or you know, you're making them up a war story, and then you realize like there's just so much going on. Uh, it's just the detail that you're fixated on, you miss a million things. And we're observant people, you know, uh, all, all three of us who are trained to, to know what's going on and have a situational awareness. It's just, it's amazing. You know, it's like physics stop making sense. Time stops making sense. And all of a sudden you're just saturated and then you come to the end of it and it's, it's like you, you're processing all this stuff. You're like what really just happened? So you spent 18 more years of this, uh, Tom, after this time period, right? 18, 19 more years. Because, I mean, at this point, you only had about a year and a half, two years in. So this was just the beginning of your Delta career at that point. Yeah, quite a start. Um, I, uh, I, I, would, I was hoping after that it would never be like that again. Um, but I, I was open to the possibility of it being that way. Um, I was asked today, did I rethink what I wanted to do? And I probably did for a little bit. I think I gave up that night. I figured I was dead that night. So I didn't. It almost got better that night, um, October 3rd and 4th. That, that period of darkness was uh, it was a calming when I kind of figured, well, I'm not going to make it. Let's just take as many as we can with us. And it kind of 
stop me from thinking about home, stop me from thinking about anything else other than let's do some damage and then get on out of here or do some damage before, you know, the end of it is. So I, I thought on it a little bit, but I think it passed quickly. What I, well, I thought it passed quickly. Um, at least I learned to deal with it and hide it pretty quick. And, uh, you know, you get that little break. And then I think we had Bosnia come up and a lot of production details. And then uh, had a little bit of break before before we went back to war anyway, you know, sustained war, which I haven't experienced anything like 3 October in my deployments in Iraq. It was, uh, I didn't feel as, as lost or alone, you know, or trapped, at least when you know there's a big army unit that can come get you or or you got, you got, somebody out there you can reach out to but when we were there it just felt like there was nobody coming to get us and there was no way out and yeah this never felt that bad before um and i've, I've never been in a firefight that, that that big before we did do one one hit in iraq that i had that here we go again feeling uh we did an infill just south of uh, baghdad and it was uh Inserted on the roof, and the helo got shot on infill and crash landed about 100 meters, 200 meters away at the end of a field. And I thought, well, there we go. Um, you know, helo shot down, some more of the same. And then I went inside and I was uh, talking to one of the detainees, and I heard somebody crackle over the radio, hey, we got a guy running in. And then I heard an explosion in the next room, and then the radio cut off. And I thought, wow, man, it really is. Here we are. Here we go again. And I almost repeated. Well, I did. I did repeat it. I uh, I remember the lesson learned about bringing extra water, an extra kit. I mean, I never went without my nods again, but we started running out of water that night again. While I waited for the dart team to come in, which first time I ever heard what a dart team was was when I called in and said, "Hey, we're going to burn this helo and get out of here." And like, no, 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 we're going to send in a dart team. I'm like, a what? <laughs> a downed aircraft rescue team. I go, what does that mean? We're going to send in test pilots and repair parts and fix it and fly it out of there. I'm like, well, how long does that take? Now, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're getting, we're taking fire and I got a guy who just got blown up. And, uh, and it took a while. And so after that, I finally remembered the SOP that when I infill, especially in a headquarters element, because in Somalia, I was the young kid in Iraq. I'm in charge of these guys. I'm like, you know what? Headquarters element, we're going to kick out cases of water, Mark Lanier, Kim Light. And if we need him, great. We'll come back and get them. If not, the bad guys can have it. You know, it's just water. But uh, another thirsty night, another downed helo, another blown up guy. And I was like, man, I'm not repeating this ever again. So yeah. you, you can't, you say that to make yourself feel better, but you never know when it's going to happen. <laughs> well, you had like, what, over 100 missions, I think, during the remaining of that time frame. And I can only imagine that the op tempo uh, probably takes a toll on a lot of you, tier one guys, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of guys, well, some guys like to make fun of you. Um, oh, you don't go for a year, huh? You don't deploy for 18 months? I'm like, no, I don't take my entire battalion, pack up and move overseas and <laughs> a movie theater and APs and a PX and a swimming pool. We go for 90 days. And by the way, we're doing five to 10 hits a night. You know, we are, we're going to get that packet going. And the day you show up, the guys that are leaving are handing off intel. Here you go. Hit it. Hit this tonight. And you're like, okay. And at that op tempo is, so high i don't think you could do more than 90 days um without a break so you guys got lucky because that wasn't the same for uh mine on a couple of occasions and i know we were doing we weren't doing five hits tonight but we were up to two to three 
in the night. And then, oh, by the way, we're, we're driving the Intel cycle as well, too. Um, we got fortunate one of the trips where uh, TF-17 got kicked out of country, essentially, because they had shot Zar- uh, uh, Maliki's cousin or something like that. But And so we got some of their target deck or whatever. But, yeah. But at the same time, explaining that to people that you guys have that 90-day op tempo and that, oh, by the way, it's it's not really you're hanging out or anything after the fact. It's it's prepping for the next. Yeah. Yeah, I'll attest to that, too. We, uh, you know, we're on a similar cycle to you over in Ranger Bat, and we'll go over there for 90 to 100 days, and we stretch that out a couple times to, you know, six or seven months. And, man, I've never been so burned out in my life. I mean, it just, they aren't lying about the op tempo. You really, you got 90 days, and after that, your performance starts to degrade real sharply and it's, and your recovery time is a lot, lot longer. You know, I, most deployments you're raring to go after, you know, a quick training cycle in the States, you're ready to go back and do your thing. But after that one, I was like, I need another year of training, relaxing, like to be a human being again. So I can definitely attest to that. It is kind of obnoxious when, you know, people are like, Oh, you only go over there for this short amount of time, you know? I don't mind being a little arrogant about it. I mean, like, well, if you killed as many terrorists as we did, you'd get to go home early too. You know, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> That's what MWR. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's part of the challenge of uh, the soft community, though, too, making the transition out of the uh, the military, right, uh, is because of that op tempo and, and what you guys do and what you guys are experiencing. And I think that probably um, is part of the reason why, you know, maybe yourself, Tom, had a little bit of struggle of making that transition over to the private uh, side of things. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, you know the op tempo thing we found that guys were getting hurt at the end of that 90 days you know that's where most of our injuries came from was uh was towards the end of the cycle so they were making sure they were kept short but when you go that much and then you get out there's really no transition to getting out it's it's you're in the military oh here's a cap it might be six months but you're still working you know um, right and then one day you're out and it's like well now what now, most guys don't plan ahead there's a, there's a couple of nonprofits out there that are helping uh, rangers plan ahead, either stay in or get out, or stay in or plan your future and, and prep for it. But I didn't plan on getting out, um, and I didn't think about what would happen when I got out. I thought, well, I'll live off retirement, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not really retiring. You're starting a second career. I got lucky. I pushed my my problems to the right a year and a half. When I got out, I, I, I took a job in Jordan, and I lived there for a year and a half, training their military guys to be special forces. I would run through a four-month program, put them through a four-month you know SF program, and then I would have a 30-day break before I started the next four-month program. So I'd have to wrap up the last course for 10, 10 to 14 days, go home for a week or two, and then come back and prep for the next course. So I'm doing the same thing, um, living overseas, screwing up my marriage and my kids, and oh, by the way, making a lot of money now, which I thought would make it better. And, I, and money does not make it better. It, uh, it doesn't do anything, really, except let you buy cool stuff until you run out of money again and have to keep working. But I, I, uh, when that dried up, let's see, it was contract work, and I still didn't plan ahead. And I ended up laying in bed for six months, probably watching TV all night long, sleeping in the day, you know, and it, that's when everything took a toll on me. 
that's that's probably about the time I, I, I almost killed myself. It was miserable. I had no purpose. I didn't I didn't belong to anything that I thought of. Um, I, I did I miss everything? Maybe. Um, but I missed the brotherhood. I missed the friends. I missed belonging and and contributing to society. I guess. And I didn't think there was another way to do it. And so I started just drinking heavily, um, not giving a shit about anything, and then almost almost led me to. I, I mean, I had the pistol in my lap. I was going to shoot myself. Um, until my wife texted me, and she wasn't my wife at the time. It was just some girl I didn't know, texting me that I was late. I was late for a meeting, and I slipped right back into military. Oh shit, I'm late, man. Let me put this gun away. I'll blow my head off later. And, uh, and I go rushing in there, and I, I've got pictures of me at that time with a buddy of mine, and you can tell I'm miserable. I'm overweight. I'm miserable, and you can see the disgust in my face. I didn't notice that till this year when I looked at that photo, and. Uh, I said, that's the day I was going to kill myself, man. I can see why now. But uh, everybody says the same thing. And Jen, Jen can elaborate on this more. She talks to veterans every day more so than me because I have another job I'm doing as well. That, uh, and it's just she's easy to talk to. She's better at it. Guys like to talk to her. And they spill their guts. To me, they're still trying to, well, you know, that's cool. And I'm like, no, really. I was a total screw-up. I was screwing my life up. I was screwing my family up. I was screwing myself up, and and I didn't care. And I was drinking myself to death. And I, I know how you're feeling, but they don't want to. They don't want to tell you that. So it's, oh, oh, Jen. Oh, hey, yeah. Hey, what's wrong with me? I have this. I mean, she can lay down more the the similar symptoms that everybody has over and over again on the phone. It's like you forgot one. Keep thinking about it. You forgot one of them. <laughs> I was in a similar situation about two and a half years ago before I finally decided to kick the uh, substance therapy and finally make my wife my wife. Um, yeah. and, and I and it's funny, too, because I look at some of the pictures and uh, she's like, man, you look sad. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I do. And so I, I, I share that with you for sure. It's literally physical. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Jen, what, what would you say the common... Um, well, I think what I hear a lot of is just the loss of the tribe mentality. Um, and so isolation becomes, um, it becomes really prevalent and then it becomes something that is almost, um, like well, one of the things I'll ask first off the bat is like, how often do you see your friends? Are you making friends out in the community or? Who are you hanging out with? Who are you touching base with? You could tell right away when, oh, I haven't talked to anybody but you in a week or two weeks. Mm. Um, and then I know right away, okay, this person's already isolating. You know, how much are you drinking a night? No, really, how much are you drinking a night? Okay, mm. last third yeah. time. <laughs> double it, double <laughs> it, whatever they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not a judgment question. I'm just trying to see where you're at, you know with self-medicating because it truly is it's like you said it's liquid therapy and um but you know when you i went to health coaching school i was working with tom for a little over three years embedding with um special operation groups stateside so doing rmts um, with tom and that's really where my passion for our foundation was born out of was it didn't matter what group i was working with we mainly probably 80% of our clients were SEAL teams, so most familiarity with them. We did a couple Ranger contracts, and 
a few with Green Berets, but it really didn't matter what group, especially to a civilian like me, you know. When I met Tom, they said, oh, you're, you're going to meet this Delta Force guy. And I said, what's Delta Force? And they were like, don't say that. I'm like, what is it, like a SEAL? I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, my God. There's a bunch of other Delta guys. Don't ever say that. I'm like, oh, what? Almost a SEAL. <laughs> I, I have no idea. So, but really, like, it didn't matter what group I was embedding with. It didn't matter. I mean, I would see it more with the older guys, but the ones that deployed a lot, it was the same. It was the same symptoms over and over again. And I was shocked at how little it was discussed. Nobody talked about it. It was truly this. I I had a call one day with um, a SEAL commander and he was calling about nutrition stuff. So he's like, oh, hey, you know, I need to lose a little weight, stuff like that. And usually it's like an hour into um, into the call that really the deeper, darker stuff comes out and talking about his kids and his wife. And, um, you know, I said, so how do you talk to the guys about this? You guys just got back from a deployment. You know, what systems do you have in place? And he goes, oh, my God, we don't I don't talk about this at work. Nope, we don't. And I'm like, you're the leader. Like, if you're hiding it, you know, what hope do we have for the kids who are 22 and 24? And Tom was, what, 24 in Somalia? I mean, to be able to process that at such a young age, really in any age, um, it was it was very surprising and heartbreaking, honestly, for me. Well, one of the issues, I think, too, and you probably saw this, was the fact that there's such a stigma with, you know, basically admitting to PTSD or, you know, admitting that you needed therapy. I know that was a huge deal for me, and, I, and it sucked. Uh, but finally, and then you had to find the right type of therapist, because I know the first therapist I had just kept wanting to push opioids and stuff my way. And I was like, no, I didn't want that because I had an ex-wife who her family members had like addictions with it. And I, and I saw a couple of guys on my teams struggle with that as well, too. And I was like, I, I, that's not the way I was like, I don't need a, an excuse for my <laughs> solutions. I need a solution. You know, and they, and they come from all walks of life, too. I mean, I think this past weekend, unfortunately, there were three guys that took their lives. I mean, we had one guy, I think, from the 160th, one guy from the Air Force, one guy that was a recon. That's, those are the just the ones I know of that actually um, decided to end their life this past weekend. And so it knows no color, race, creed, sex, whatever. Um, it, it's just one of these deep, dark secrets and stuff that people try to, to hold back. Everybody thinks it's their own hidden secret. And I tell everybody, you're, you're all hiding it from each other, but you're all the same. You're all the same. You Guys text me you know, on the side. Uh, is it, does it make me a wuss if I go see a therapist? Like, I go every week, man. I'd go more if it didn't cost so much. You know? Mm-hmm. I found mm-hmm. the right one. Like you said, you got to find the right one. Um, some guys, I've been to therapists and they suck. I go, you went to one. And it didn't match up. Go again. Go another one. Find the one that understands you it's uh you can't give it up man but two of my friends killed themselves over the last two three weeks you know from the unit it's like seriously it oh doesn't regret it i mean one guy was young um 34 i mean he was mm-hmm. young and and kind of new to the unit i mean i guess i'd been out a bit but um he still looked like a young kid and just happy saw him last november yeah happy him and his wife just smiling and boom wow it's uh it's sad 
that's how it happens too. You know, I mean, same thing. I'm sure Eric can attest to this, and, and Rob, you can too. It, you don't even see it coming. You know, it's not like uh, you know you didn't recognize in yourself that you were down in that hole until you looked at the pictures later. You know, like you got your friends, you think everything's fine, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and and uh, you don't really realize why um, until after the fact. So, hundred percent right, and it is. It's, I'm glad you said that. That thing about like going back seeking out a good counselor, a good mental mental health professional to help you through. I mean, I've been through, I can't tell you how many of them. Um, and I still haven't found the right one, you know, and, you know, time permitting, I, I go back and I, I keep trying, you know, and I get a little bit out of everything. In my, uh, and it is some aggravation, you know, when you're with some guy who's got a PhD and he doesn't understand, you don't like what, what he's saying, but uh, being proactive in and of itself is helpful, you know, so. Yeah, if we can just get these guys to get off the couch and, and, and give it a shot versus hiding. You know, some guys, I'm going to move to Montana or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you're taking your problems, and now you're alone. <laughs> yep. You still yep. have problems. You don't run from them. You bring them with you, and now you have no friends or support. Well, it's just like the bottle. The bottle will be your friend for a period of time, but once you come out of that and you come down and you hit back to reality, it's still there. Yeah, and, and, and I know guys are lying to me when I talk to them. I, I talk to their friends. Their friends are like, oh, he's drinking all the time. He did this and that. And the other guy's like, I'm working on it. I quit drinking. I'm like, okay, cool. As long as you really, really are working on it, quit drinking. I mean, I don't confront them. I'm not a counselor or anything. I'm just here to direct them where to go if they're ready. But if they're not ready, I'm just here for you, man. You know, and when they lie to me, I'm like, I was there. When I met her and I was, I was, you know, I'm, I'm in Savannah, living in Savannah. She's living in St. Louis and I'm drinking on my way home from work every day. I couldn't wait to hit the bar on the way home. And, uh, and then I'm, you know, it was a joke. Don't talk to Tom before 11. He's a jerk. You know, I'm hungover, man. I'm, I'm trying to get to lunch so I can never drink again until 4 p.m. when I can't wait to drink again. And then she's like, are you drinking? I'm like, no, no, just grabbing some food, you know, just four hours later she's like you still eating i'm like oh, i'm on my way home now man you know yeah you've been drinking no, i haven't been drinking baby no nope 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 you know and i'm but i mean tossed so <laughs> and there, and i mean not like i don't know how to best to say this but i mean there were i had a couple of buddies that we tried to see who could be the better functioning alcoholic at times and i mean it it, it got bad it's the culture Drinking is what we do. Let's go celebrate the death of somebody, which is yeah. everything now, and get and get totally blasted, man. But like we don't, we make it a point. I mean, I don't, I don't not drink now, but I don't, I don't ever get blasted. It's like, well, especially around people, especially around people that I know. You know, my parents are alcoholics. Um, they're well recovering alcoholics. So a lot of guys I know that just uh, they quit drinking, they get better. And then they start drinking again, and they get worse, and they wonder why. And I'm like, just just pay attention to yourself, man. Just pay attention and to what you're, you're doing. And who you're surrounding yourself with. Yeah, great point, Jim, because I think that's just at your inner circle. Who are the five people that you're spending your most time with? Yeah, that, that, that does make the difference. And, I mean, for me, I had to quit. And I was like, I'm going to be – and I became a Mormon, so all my buddies are calling me the Storm and Mormon. I went from the F word being my lexicon to they're calling me, like, Wally and the B. They're like – Oh gosh, buddy. And, and I was like, but that was how I grew up. Cause I mean, I remember when I showed up at Ranger Regiment, people were like, you don't curse. It, it's that birds of a feather mentality. And I had to get away from people that basically wanted to drown their own sorrows as well too. Toxic. You got to get away from the toxicity. I mean, you got to recognize it. And that's part of the problem is when you're hazed over and somebody, 
you know, you don't see it and somebody has to be able to point that out to you and you may not be willing to accept it readily. And I'm sure that's some of the things that you probably counsel folks on as well, Jen, is trying to recognize your surroundings and get out of the cloud. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things I'll kind of talk about is who are you hanging out with? What are you doing in your spare time? You know, hey, um, I mean, a lot of the people I initially started working with, um, it was a very interesting group because it would be some of Tom's friends who were in the same group. So Tom's 51. So people who had been out for a while and had been doing contract work, which um, really was killing them too. Like, I got to get out of this. This is killing me, but I don't know what other skills I have. I don't know what else to do. And then, you know, some of the guys that I had befriended when I was working um, in the contracting world with him. So then I started talking to some of the younger guys, you know, late twenties, early thirties. And um, it would be funny because they're like, can I give my number, your number to like another guy in the group? I know he's, you know, has some marital issues. Then it would be, Hey, can you talk to my wife or can you, can you explain what's happening here? And really it just was so obvious to me that there's just not enough information. Um, and there's just not enough people stepping out and talking about it. And that's one of the things that I really admired about Tom was when I said, you've got to start sharing your story. And initially he really didn't want to, I mean, he was like, I, you know, I mean, for 20 years, he would make a joke about what he did because he couldn't say what he did. So I was always these funny stories like, Oh, we would tell these people we're trash collectors or we, you know, <laughs> worked in the sewer systems or sewer divers, you know, like that was their joke. And so it was really uncomfortable for him the first year to step out and talk, but the amount of impact it has is far greater. And so, I mean, we, every time he talks, every time he does a podcast, um, anytime he posts something, we get hundreds of messages of people saying, I thought I was alone in this, or, you know, I didn't know you felt that way too, or, you know, Oh, I'm going to try and rebuild my life or my marriage or even redefining your purpose because, a lot of the guys I'll talk to, I'm like, well, what are you passionate about? What do you like to do? And one of the guys is like, oh, I really love music. I play seven different instruments. My dad's a music producer. I'm like, well, go do that. You're a really smart guy. You know, you're in the unit. You um, have a lot of skills. Just use those skills in music. Well, I don't know what other people would think of me or how my brothers would, you know, view me like going into music now. And I'm like, why do you care? Why do you care what other people think of you? Follow mm -hmm. your heart. Follow your passion. And the ones that can do that, I feel like the ones who can really step out um, and still be part of that tribe mentality, not say, oh, well, I'm done. I'm done with the military, but keep in touch with your brothers, you know, sisters, you know, stay in contact with them and, and try to help them um, is, is huge. And that was huge for Tom's healing process was helping others as well, continuing a life of service. It might not look like a military, but really people don't need the assassin Tom anymore in the civilian world. This is not doesn't like read well on a resume, but, but all the skills and the leadership that he's learned, um, you know, helping and giving back to the people that he loves his community of military, which is very important to him has been critical for his own healing process. 
Yeah, that selfless service, that giving back, and uh, that never leave a fallen brother. I mean, and we're talking about all of that same thing. And it's part of the reason why, of course, we started the Mentors for Military side of it as well, Mentors for Military podcast, is trying to figure out a way to give back. How to, how can we mentor and give back the knowledge and wisdom? And we all talk about it, how you don't gain wisdom through all the great uh, things that you did. You do it by all the mistakes. You gain wisdom for from all the lessons that you learned. And that's how you pass and impart that on. And you guys started this foundation, which congratulations. I know I said this to you on the phone a couple uh, days back, Jim, but you guys just got your 501c3 and that's a very challenging aspect for all secure foundations. So congratulations on that. And maybe you can tell us a little bit. I know we've talked around it a little bit about what all secure foundation does, but maybe share the purpose and in, in, uh, the mission statement of all secure. I want to I want to start by saying that um, that our key behind it, and she'll break it down, is is more leadership. Um, being a unit and talking about it, I'm going to catch some flack, um, even though it's 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 okay and it's legal. Um, some guys just just fall into that, and what we're trying to do is produce leaders. And like like you talk about mentorship and, and leadership is is being able to admit that you know what here's what's right. I was talking, you were talking earlier, I was talking about people on Facebook. I would post pictures of me being happy and I'm so this and that. And I was like, are you hanging out with your hippie friends again? What's wrong with you? Like, What's wrong with being happy? So they yeah. want to drag you down to that pit. And I'm like, you got, I'm a boat man. I'm looking for a sail. I don't need an anchor. You know, my wife's my anchor when I need it, but she's my sail to get me going. And, and, and then when she brought me into this, I'm like, that's what we need. We need leadership. People that, other people respect for whatever reason, whether I use the unit to get people to listen to me like, Oh my gosh, it's a unit. I'm going to listen to that guy, whatever it is, as long as you're hearing my story and it's, and it's leadership, man, it's okay to be happy. It's okay to move on. It's okay to be personable and nice to people, you know? So this is all the stuff I learned from her. So she's like, you got to do this foundation. And I'm like, I have no clue what we're doing. She's like, I don't either. Let's do it. Let's keep going. <laughs> I'm glad I, we found you. Cause like, I know, it was like late last year or earlier this year, uh, you had posted something and I was all over it because I, I needed it because, I mean, I'm on an island being around a bunch of, you know, basically like Medcom and then uh, I've got the ROTC people and then most of them are even civilians. So it was nice. It was a breath of fresh air to see somebody speak up about some of these issues because I was like, yes, that I know that. <laughs> right? I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. I absolutely do. I mean, another sort of thing that we do in the foundation and, and one of the things that I love about it is we partner with other nonprofits and I've, I've gotten to meet so many other amazing military groups that are doing phenomenal things um, in, in different sectors, like the Darby Project, who mentors. Oh, yeah. And, um, Bryce Mahoney. I don't know if you've. Uh... Bryce and I talk on the phone for hours, too. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, let's go, Bryce. I got my coffee. But um, but just phenomenal people across the country that are doing really amazing things. Um, and I love that about it. It's just this community of everybody really coming together. Um, there are a few organizations that have called us competition. And, you know, I'm like, competition what? for helping? Like, yeah, what is wrong with that? I mean, that, delete. <laughs> delete. Plenty um, of veterans in need out there. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I think we need more hands on deck, not less. But Right. Um, but where we really specialize is the transition. So what we really focus on is redefining your purpose, helping you kind of find your purpose, whatever that may be post-service, 
Um, we talk about that, Jen, I don't mean to cut you off, but we, we talk about that a lot. And that's part of the challenge too, though. I think you would agree is that a lot of guys coming off a lot of people, I should say, not just guys, but people coming off active duty, um, at at especially a young age, don't understand passion or purpose and how to define that within their life. And so it's a struggle anyway, and an ACAP and all that is not, they're not prepared to help counsel in that way to help a young person try to figure out what their passion is. They're just there to punch a ticket uh, of how many people go through that program. It's not even how many get jobs. And they help you fill out a high school resume, not not somebody who's had uh, military experience. And um, half of them never worked a day in their life, been a hiring manager or been in human resources. But they're giving advice to you of how to do that. And somewhere along the line, someone like us comes along and goes, what's your passion? What's your purpose? They don't even know what that means. We got to break it down for them. Oh, absolutely. I, and I love those conversations sort of the most. Um, is really, I feel like uh, I've been through a lot of transitions and career shifts in my life and really have always tried to honor where should I be stepping into next and, and going for it. Like when I got hired by the special ops contracting firm, I never worked in military and never, I was shooting fashion and commercials. And I was like, you got the wrong girl. I, I mean, I've Same never... Thing. From Victoria's Secret to soft (laughs) operators. Yeah, that's pretty close, right? Whatever, whatever, (laughs) you know, like I'll try it. Why not? But um, and then I loved it. It was there for three and a half years. But um, until we did this, when I really felt like this is my calling, this is my purpose. I, I was here to learn, to get to know the guys, to get to hear their experiences, their stories. Um. RMTs, I know, are not combat. I don't pretend to know what combat's like, but seeing RMTs really freak the civilian out. Like, I think I cried the first year <laughs> on them. Like, yeah. you know, there's a hundred role players. They have, you know, bombs going off and people going down. And really I started to see the stress that was happening. Some, we had one team that had just got back. They were doing this exercise a few months before they were getting ready to deploy maybe the next day, a couple days. I know it was really soon. Mm-hmm. And one of them hit a tripwire and Tom goes over and taps three of them like, you're dead, you lost your legs, you know, you have an arm and whatever injury. And the guy just freaked out, was freaking out. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, is this guy okay? You know, and Tom's like, just, you know, we just got to let him go through it. But to see that kind of stress, knowing that, like, if he would have made that mistake tomorrow, it would have cost him his life and everybody else behind him. So, um, so getting to see that I think helped me in the work I'm doing now. Um, even working with spouses who have a hard time understanding because a lot of the guys won't talk to their spouses about it. They want to bring it into the home. And what I have to tell them is it's already in the home. You've already brought it in the home. So not talking about it, um, is creating a distance and not that you have to share every detail, but, your wife is your partner, you know? Um, and so we do work on the family rebuilding marriages, um, is really important to us as well. We actually have our first special operation, um, reboot marriage kind of camp, um, next summer here in St. Louis. So really it's redefining purpose, strengthening and rebuilding the family unit. 
Which is amazing. So when somebody listens to this, they're going to go, okay, how can I be a part of this? How can I support it? Or how can I just reach out to find out my per- passion, purpose, or next steps in life? So how would somebody go about finding All Secure Foundation? So we are online, allsecurefoundation.org. Uh, we have a lot of resources from books to read, um, on purpose, on PTS. We drop the D. We don't believe it's a mental disorder. It's a natural response to stress. So we say PTS um, at our foundation. And uh, materials on strengthening marriage, redefining purpose. We're um, starting our own podcast, just bringing in different experts and different field experts. So it could be a marriage therapist one week. It could be a child therapist the next week. Um, somebody from a different military group. Um, we have a blog up now where every Wednesday we feature a different warrior who has um, faced their challenges and come to the other side. So an inspiration for, hey, yeah, I, I know you're going through this stuff, but look at these people who have um, battled their demons and won. So That's amazing. I'm glad you guys were kind enough to come on and share your story and especially take as long as we did i know we originally said that we'd like to stay around 40 minutes to an hour or so but this is just a great story and a and a great experience and uh you know not something that i think you can do in even that limited time i I probably underestimated that but i really appreciate that and tom we didn't get a chance to talk about one thing the fact that you played the violin at a young age and uh so we didn't get a chance to go down that road I'm so Next awesome. Time. I'm so awesome on the violin. <laughs> you still pick it up? Nope. <laughs> you know what? My son wanted to play violin. I'm like, really? Okay. And I bought a violin, brought it home. I'm like, let me show you how to do this. And I tried to do it. I'm like, never mind. Figure it out. <laughs> I was going to ask you back on the uh, SFAS or the um, the Delta selection if the guy that uh, came from the band brought his guitar. If you showed him a few things or told him, yeah, that you were a violin player. No, I play guitar now. Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of soaking up my night. I'll get on there and, and fake some music, but uh, <laughs> yeah. violin violin's not happening anymore. That's uh, <laughs> that's the magic between working the book and working my job and working the foundation. I'm, I'm about I have about an hour a day. I grab the violin and go sit out back and just or guitar. the guitar. There, you got me saying violin. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, wait, what? It's been so long, and just play guitar just just to kind of let go a little bit. Awesome, man. Well, again, I appreciate you guys coming on and taking uh, time out of your busy schedule. Thank, Thank you, you for all three us. guys. Appreciate everything. Absolutely. Uh, you. No, it's great to hear from you guys. 